Chapter 3 The Coming Class War Aristocratic elites typically segregated themselves from the rest of the societies over which they ruled. Aristocrats traditionally owned things, performed rituals, and even wore clothes and ate foods that distinguished them from the masses. In some cases, laws, known as sumptuary codes, even mandated the distinctions by forbidding non-aristocrats from owning or consuming aristocratic things. The post-World War II American order dampened these distinctions, at least where economics was concerned. Race, gender, and sexuality divided society and imposed hierarchy and subordination in mid-century America, as they have done since the founding. But income and wealth mostly did not. Palo Alto was not materially different from St. Clair Shores in 1960. Each town had its own local flavor. Jerry Garcia settled in Palo Alto as Bob Seeger played the Crow's Nest East in St. Clair Shores. But median incomes and house prices were similar in both towns. Both places, moreover, grew steadily. The Stanford Shopping Center opened in Palo Alto in 1955 to meet a rising demand for places to shop, just a few years before the Shore Club high-rise apartments would be built to meet demand for places to live in St. Clair Shores. Palo Alto and St. Clair Shores illustrated the age. Wages across regions converged between 1950 and 1970, and college graduates were remarkably evenly distributed across the country. Between urban and rural locations, across geographic regions, and even within cities. The elite and the middle class married and parented in the same ways, ate the same foods, watched the same television and movies, and even owned the same things, right down to the brands that made them and the stores that sold them. Americans bought 90% of their cars from Ford, Chrysler, or General Motors, whose most expensive models cost perhaps twice the price of an average car, half of their appliances from Sears, and a third of their watches from Timex. Post-war capitalism created a society that was not just politically, but also economically and socially democratic. Quite possibly for the first time in recorded history, the rich and the rest lived the same lives and even had the same stuff. Mid-century Americans self-consciously embraced this democratic merger and celebrated their classless society, including in popular culture. Economic fundamentals produced cultural practices that reached deeply and broadly into people's lives to influence not just how they lived, but also how they thought about how they lived, establishing an imaginative field. F. Scott Fitzgerald once remarked in a short story that the very rich are different from you and me. And Ernest Hemingway, in a short story of his own, had a character reply, yes, they have more money. With respect to economic inequality at mid-century, Hemingway was right and Fitzgerald wrong. The rich merged seamlessly into the middle class, and insofar as income did insert a seam into American society, it separated the middle class from the poor. Outside of poverty, economic inequality at mid-century presented a social blur. Economic distinctions did not disappear entirely, to be sure. 
but they became so small that the post-war decades are commonly called the Great Compression. Today, meritocracy reinstates aristocratic distinctions. As meritocratic inequality resolves the social blur that once blended the rich into the middle class through small differences of degree into a razor-sharp line that separates the rich from the rest by a difference in kind. The ratio of one percenter to median incomes is now double what it was at mid-century, even as incomes in the middle and bottom quintiles have converged. Moreover, meritocratic inequality's effects on the lives of both the rich and the rest are not limited to income, understood as an abstract dollar sum. The rich and the rest now marry separately. 25% of American marriages are today composed of two college graduates, compared to 3% in 1960. The rich and the rest parent differently and in profoundly divergent domestic circumstances. Women with a high school education or less now bear more than half of their children outside of marriage, for example, which is roughly 20 times the share for women with a college degree or more. The rich and the rest enjoy different pastimes. The rich spend so much less time at passive leisure than the rest, and so much, two to five times, more time exercising, that whereas prosperous was once a euphemism for overweight, fitness is now a status symbol. The rich and the rest worship different gods, or at least congregate in different religions. High church Protestants, Jews, and Hindus are unusually rich and educated. Low church Protestants are unusually poor and uneducated, and only Catholics mirror all of society. The rich and the rest also inhabit different worlds online. An exhaustive analysis recently studied Google data on searches initiated in both the most and least prosperous counties in the country, ranked according to an index that includes income and education. The study revealed that the searches most correlated with prosperity include digital cameras, baby joggers, Skype, and foreign travel. By contrast, the searches most correlated with deprivation included health problems, weight loss, guns, video games, and the Antichrist, hell, and the rapture. Even geography now separates the rich from the rest. Palo Alto has left St. Clair Shores behind. Median incomes in Palo Alto now almost triple those in St. Clair Shores, and median house prices are roughly 20 times as high. Palo Alto's residents are three times more likely to hold a BA and five times more likely to hold a graduate or professional degree than residents of St. Clair Shores. The next neighborhoods over extend the isolation of the elite. Palo Alto is embedded in Silicon Valley, as St. Clair Shores is embedded in Detroit. Similar gaps are opening across the country. Regional wages generally have diverged in the most recent four decades, and a vast educational divide has opened up between town and country. By 2000, the percentage of young adults with college degrees in rural areas was half that of the average city. College graduates, moreover, converge on a few particular and distinctive places, 
so that nearly half of couples in which both partners are highly educated live in large metropolitan areas. The convergence is greatest at the very top. Three-quarters of the participants in a recent survey of Harvard, Princeton, and Yale alumni live in zip codes that rank in the top 20% on an index of income and education. Half live in zip codes in the top 5%, and a quarter live in zip codes in the top 1%. The elite, moreover, did most of the traveling that caused this sorting, as young college graduates are more than twice as likely to move between states as young people with high school degrees only. This makes perfect sense. Moving far from home is exciting and even life-affirming for a superordinate worker whose sense of self comes from his job, but it is only frightening and isolating for a middle-class worker condemned to dead-end jobs for whom self-esteem stems from communal ties. Nevertheless, the experience of moving for work and to certain cities has itself become a marker of eliteness, an axis of economic segregation. The Meritocratic Divide Meritocracy divides society against itself. It remakes childhood and adulthood, the home and the office, in its own divisive image. And the rich and the rest now work, marry, parent, socialize, read, eat, and even worship differently and apart from each other. These differences accumulate, and the meritocratic divide becomes too wide for the imagination to bridge, so that the rich and the rest fall out of sympathy with each other. All these developments play out meritocratic inequality's inner logics. The rich find marriage partners in the schools and especially colleges that dominate elite youth. They then structure their adult lives to support the intense parenting and education required to pass their caste on to their children. Meritocracy even influences where the elite live. Physical capital is generally immovable and necessarily dispersed, so that a rentier elite naturally scatters throughout a country. Human capital, by contrast, is mobile and critically most productive when superordinate workers deploy their skills together in close proximity. Meritocracy therefore induces the highly educated families that it creates to flee certain places and flock to others. In all these ways, and myriad others besides, meritocratic inequality comprehensively divides the rich and the rest, so that they each lead lives that the other can hardly recognize. Although Hemingway may have won the argument with Fitzgerald at mid-century, meritocratic inequality increasingly vindicates Fitzgerald's view. Whereas the mid-century economic model achieved an amazingly deep unity of interests and of ideals across the broad middle class, economic inequality now threatens to divide America against itself as profoundly as race and gender once did. Racism and sexism have deep roots in American history and endure today, of course. Both insert fault lines into society that class does not displace. And persistent racial inequalities of income, and especially wealth, demonstrate both that American racism operates independent of class and that racial subordination persists, in fact, even where it is forbidden by law. But class 
considered in addition to, rather than instead of, race and gender, now provides an organizing principle for comparably powerful social and economic stratification. Indeed, class stratification today produces inequalities that resemble the inequalities that de jure racial segregation produced at mid-century. The earlier observation that the rich-poor achievement gap in school now exceeds the white-black gap under Jim Crow reports just one instance of a broader trend. Economic differences in home ownership rates and unemployment rates, for example, have also grown to resemble racial differences at mid-century. Economic inequality now organizes life even within racial groups. Among black men born in the late 1960s, for example, high school dropouts have a 59% chance of going to prison at some point in their lives, whereas college graduates have a 5% chance. These comparisons should not obscure racial subordination, but they do shine a light on class. Class appears in this light comprehensively to organize American social and economic life under meritocracy. Borrowing from the Victorian politician and thinker Benjamin Disraeli, who described another, admittedly different, caste system, one might even say that in the United States today, the rich and the rest comprise two nations, between whom there is no intercourse and no sympathy, who are as ignorant of each other's habits, thoughts, and feelings as if they were dwellers in different zones or inhabitants of different planets, who are formed by a different breeding, are fed by a different food, are ordered by different manners, and are not governed by the same laws. Comprehensive inequality poses a threat to American society that extends far beyond the distress that the meritocracy trap inflicts on individual people, on either side of the meritocratic divide. Mid-century social solidarity, the broad unities of interest and imagination that led Hemingway to believe that the rich were distinguished only by wealth, has been shattered by meritocratic inequality. Rising inequality renders the middle class vulnerable and insecure. Winner-take-all competition gives elites growing incentives to defend their position. And elite education reframes meritocracy itself as an obstacle to social mobility and middle-class opportunity. Furthermore, meritocratic inequality also undermines the mid-century unity of ideals. This is meritocracy's most profound threat to social solidarity, and the threat that is most deeply rooted in meritocracy's peculiar structure. Meritocracy connects income to education, and through education, to work, family, culture, and even place, giving economic differences new dimensions of quality as well as quantity. This comprehensive divide prevents the rich and the rest from even imagining an ideal of the common good that they might share across caste boundaries. Andrew Carnegie, writing The Gospel of Wealth at the Height of the Gilded Age, worried that the problem of our age is the proper administration of wealth, that the ties of brotherhood may still bind together the rich and poor in harmonious relationship. Today, the meritocratic divide threatens to tear society apart on account of its profound depth and comprehensive breadth. As the political theorist Robert Dahl observed 
at the close of the Great Compression, in a worry that has proved prescient, if all the cleavages in a society occur along the same lines, then the severity of conflicts is likely to increase. The man on the other side is not just an opponent, he soon becomes an enemy. Meritocracy undermines social solidarity in just this way. When meritocratic inequality creates comprehensively isolated social classes, it invites class warfare. A new ruling class. Politics provides class warfare's natural field of battle. To begin with, meritocratic inequality rejuvenates an old motive for the elite to dominate political competition. Large fortunes encourage political meddling. Self-interest recommends that the rich engage politics as a means for defending their wealth. Altruism also directs the rich toward politics. Once a person has bought everything that he wants for himself, it is only natural for him to turn his attentions to others. Moreover, meritocracy also inaugurates a new means for asserting dominance, creating a new supply of elite power. The skills, practices, and institutions that enable superordinate workers to dominate economic life also allow the elite to dominate politics. By controlling policy and by resisting the state, when they cannot set policy directly. If democracy establishes what Dahl called the continuing responsiveness of the government to the preferences of its citizens, considered as political equals, meritocracy undermines democratic politics and constitutes superordinate workers as a new ruling class. The rich dominate the financing of political campaigns to an astonishing degree. The richest 1% of Americans contribute more to political campaigns than the bottom 75% combined. Really large contributions are more concentrated still, as are the early contributions that winnow credible candidates and limit the options that voters will eventually choose among. A mere 158 families provided nearly half of all campaign contributions for the initial phase of the 2016 presidential election. And by October 2015, these families had collectively contributed $176 million. The Koch brothers' network of super-rich donors would spend nearly $1 billion on promoting free market policies. Meanwhile, lobbyists hired by elites dominate the policymaking that elected officials do once in office. There are roughly twice as many registered lobbyists in Washington today as there were in the early 1980s. And lobbyists who work for business, and therefore wealth, rather than for unions or the public interest, comprise 98% of the increase. Even when it is narrowly defined, lobbying dwarfs campaign finance in scale. In a typical year, expenditures on federally registered lobbyists exceed $3 billion, and large firms spend perhaps 10 times as much on lobbyists as on campaign contributions, and nearly 90% more than they spent as recently as the late 1990s. Moreover, elite influence over policymaking extends far beyond formally registered lobbying. Corporations, for example, target their philanthropy 
at causes associated with legislators who sit on the committees that regulate them, so that charity mimics lobbying, only leveraged with public funds in the form of the tax deduction for charitable giving. In the Limit case, lobbying of public authorities merges into direct private funding and control over public functions. The Walton Foundation, connected to the Walmart fortune, has spent over $1.3 billion on K-12 education and committed to spend another billion with a heavy focus on charter schools and the attendant disruption of teachers' unions. All this money is not spent in vain. Donors, both directly and through their lobbyists, dominate the time and attention of candidates and officeholders. Elections begin in what is called the money primary, with summits at which hopefuls court favor from groups of super-rich donors, often in resort towns. For example, Rancho Mirage, California, Sea Island, Georgia, or Las Vegas. Winning, moreover, yields no relief from the need to raise money. A model daily schedule for congresspeople calls for more than four hours directly soliciting donors every day in office. This roughly triples the time spent discussing policy with non-donor constituents, a disparity so great that politicians are sometimes said to resemble telemarketers rather than government officials. When Mick Mulvaney, the Trump administration's director of the Office of Management and Budget and, as of this writing, acting White House chief of staff, recently told the American Bankers Association that when he was in Congress, if you're a lobbyist who never gave us money, I didn't talk to you. If you're a lobbyist who gave us money, I might talk to you. He merely said aloud what everyone in American politics already knows. Politicians spend the overwhelming majority of their time with donors and lobbyists whose views they promote. Law and policy unsurprisingly follow the path set by money, time, and attention. Sometimes money openly buys policy with hardly any disguise. The Walton Foundation spending has transformed public education in Washington, D.C., where the foundation has, in effect, subsidized an entire charter school system in the nation's capital, helping to fuel enrollment growth so that close to half of all public school students in the city now attend charters. In other cases, money's influence is less obvious because disguised, but no less real. The financial sector, seeking to relax regulations limiting certain derivatives trading adopted through the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act in the wake of the financial crisis, bypassed the relatively public House and Senate Finance Committees and lobbied the low-profile Agriculture Committees, whose jurisdiction over the derivatives stems from efforts by 19th-century farmers to stabilize commodity prices. Sometimes, lobbying produces results so narrowly tailored to special interests that that policy becomes almost farcical. The casino lobby, eager to draw tourists, especially to Nevada, has exempted winnings at Blackjack, Baccarat, Craps, Roulette, and Big Six Wheel from the income tax withholding regime used to stop foreign visitors to the United States from committing tax fraud. These examples, moreover, are not exceptional. They are typical, even commonplace. Systematic studies reveal 
that law and policy respond sensitively to elite preferences, while remaining almost totally unresponsive to the preferences of everyone else. Indeed, the rich dominate even the upper middle class. When preferences at the 90th and 70th income percentiles diverge, policy continues to respond to the 90th percentile and is only minimally responsive to the 70th. Even when the middle class and the poor unite against the rich, policy adjusts to the preferences of the rich and ignores the shared preferences of the middle class and the poor. Economic inequality begets political inequality, and meritocracy undermines democracy. The Income Defense Industry and the Rule of Law Meritocracy undermines democratic politics not only at wholesale, when laws are made, but also at retail, when they are applied to particular people. Meritocracy has created a new class of super-skilled bankers, accountants, lawyers, and other professionals who seek favorable, personalized treatment from government, concerning regulatory requirements, for example, or tax shelters, on behalf of individual clients. These professional services dwarf campaign contributions, lobbying, and political philanthropy, even combined. The trusts and estates bar alone comprises over 15,000 lawyers. The total revenues of the 100 largest law firms in the United States reached $90 billion in 2017. The revenues of the big four accounting firms reached $134 billion, and the revenues of the 10 largest investment banks totaled over $250 billion. All these professions empower the rich to resist regulation, and thereby disempower the rest from subjecting wealth to law. They are, moreover, creatures of meritocracy, of the training that meritocratic educations provide, and of the enormous labor incomes that meritocratic work affords. In this way, meritocracy directly produces a new means for undermining democratic self-government. Ideology disguises this lever of elite power. The common view supposes that every property owner enjoys the same rights and protections, that she owns things in the same way, no matter what or how much property she has. According to this view, the state's relationship to private property is scale-blind, so that large fortunes and small holdings receive the same legal protections, and the hedge fund billionaire owns his portfolio in exactly the same sense in which the high school teacher owns her house. But in fact, size matters for property rights, qualitatively as well as quantitatively. A middle-class person must comply with whatever regulations the state imposes on her and forfeit whatever taxes it assesses. When the school teacher's real estate taxes go up, she simply pays. But a rich person can use his swollen fortune to hire skilled professionals to resist regulations and taxes, meeting the state on a level and often even a favorable pitch. A billionaire who faces a new tax can restructure his holdings, using perfectly legal tax shelters to avoid paying most or even all of the levy. The middle class are law takers, 
which leaves their property immediately vulnerable to regulations and taxes. The rich, by contrast, enjoy discretion to accept or reject law, which insulates their property from government intrusion. Meritocracy enhances the elite's power to resist the state. Meritocratic inequality creates incentives for the most skilled workers to grow rich by devoting themselves to defending still richer people's fortunes against government encroachment. By inventing the superordinate private sector job, meritocracy endows a class of workers, accountants, bankers, and lawyers, with the means and the motive to block the state's efforts to seize, or even just to regulate, elite wealth. These jobs are new, direct creations of meritocracy. Historically, the private sector did not value managerial and professional skills, and the state, which required such skills, faced effectively no private competition for elite labor. Into the early 20th century, top civil servants were paid 10 or even 20 times the median wage. And even at mid-century, elite government incomes remained roughly equivalent to their private sector counterparts. In 1969, a congressperson was paid more than he might make as a lobbyist. A federal judge received perhaps half what he might have commanded at a law firm, and the Secretary of the Treasury was paid a salary that was smaller than, but broadly comparable, to what he might have made in finance. The best educated and most skilled workers therefore naturally gravitated toward government or other public jobs. As when subsequent sons, deprived by primogeniture of inherited lands, joined the military or the clergy, simply because they had no better or even credible private alternatives. This kept regulators ahead of the people whom they regulated and helped the state effectively to govern even its richest subjects. Meritocratic inequality, by contrast, sharply increases elite private sector wages, even as democratic sensibilities keep public sector wages stagnant or falling. Together, these developments have completely reversed the earlier order, so that superordinate workers now earn many times more in the private sector than in government jobs. A congressperson, becoming a lobbyist, might multiply her income by a factor of 10, from $175,000 to perhaps $2 million. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court earns roughly $270,000, while the very most profitable law firms pay their average partners over $5 million annually, or roughly 20 times as much. And the signing bonus paid to former law clerks at the Supreme Court, who are perhaps two or three years out of law school, is now $400,000. And the Secretary of the Treasury earns a little more than $200,000 annually, whereas the CEOs of J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley might average incomes of $25 million, more than a hundred times as much. The absolute salary numbers, and even just the ratios between elite, private, and public sector salaries, are astronomical. Moreover, and critically, the qualitative break between the prices of the lives lived by the rich and the rest occurs above the salaries of elite government workers, but below the wages of the elite private sector workers, lobbyists, lawyers, 
accountants, and bankers who provide private influence over public policy. This is almost inevitable, as house prices in elite neighborhoods are determined by the salaries of the elite private sector workers who buy the houses. In one sense, elite government workers make a lot of money, several times the median income. But it does not take much human imagination to understand that the broad elite of public servants naturally desire the society of their private sector peers, that they desire to live in the same neighborhoods, to send their children to the same schools, and generally to mix on roughly equal terms with the people whom they knew at college and in graduate and professional school, and whom they regulate in their daily professional lives. Elite public officials need not be venal or otherwise corrupt to grasp hold of higher incomes or to join the society of the rich when opportunities in the private sector present themselves. The opportunities invariably do present themselves. Elite public officials possess precisely the educations and skills the meritocratic private sector most values. Meritocracy's hostility to prejudice expands these incentives to all elite workers. The presiding partner of the hyper-elite and conservative Cravath law firm, for example, is today a daughter of Pakistani immigrants, so that there no longer exists a subset of the super-skilled that is forced by chauvinism to resist rather than to serve wealth. Government departments have become, in the shadow of these incentives, barely disguised employment agencies, connecting public officials to future private employers. Even elected officials have gotten in on the act. In 1970, just 3% of retiring members of Congress became lobbyists. Today, 42% of representatives and 50% of senators become lobbyists on leaving public office. The move is so familiar that it has become expected. When Eric Cantor recently retired from his post as House Majority Leader, for example, the New York Times editorial board predicted that he would take a job in finance. And indeed, Cantor joined a boutique investment bank, a choice that the Wall Street Journal thought natural given that he has long been seen as a liaison of sorts between the GOP and Wall Street. Overall, talent now flows into the private sector in numbers so great of demographic proportions that they transform entire cities. Washington's elite job market is today dominated not by government hiring, but rather by a private sector effort to lure away public workers that has become pervasive, even inescapable. Placemat help wanted ads at Washington coffee shops for private jobs that pay mid-level officials starting salaries of a quarter million dollars or more are sold out years in advance. Indeed, Washington is now among the nation's leading cities in venture capital deals. And so much talent now flows into businesses and professions that seek to exert private influence over government policy that the D.C. metro area has recently added over 20,000 households to the richest 1%, far, far more than any other city, and has added college graduates more quickly than any other major metro area. A city where once defense contractors knew not to wear watches that outshone the admirals is now awash in Tesla dealerships and restaurants with prefix menus priced at $200 per person before wine. 
Meritocracy directs this talent overwhelmingly to serve the private side of the interface between government regulation and the rich, to promote elite economic interests against the state. An entire industry now devotes itself to defending the elite's income and wealth, to resisting, as a recent Citigroup brochure directed at the bank's high net worth clients said, the ways of expropriating wealth favored by organized societies confronting plutonomy. This income defense industry overwhelms the state, sometimes literally. Donald Trump's former top economic advisor, Gary Cohn, observes that only morons pay the estate tax. Cohn's language may be crass, but it reports a simple fact. A systematic elite effort, including a media strategy, campaign contributions, lobbying, and tax planning, has effectively annihilated the estate tax. A combination of high exemptions and generous opportunities for tax planning means that in 2016, even before the 2017 tax reform further weakened the tax, fewer than 5,300 families across the entire country paid any estate tax at all. The estate tax is extreme, but not exceptional. The broader complex of lawyers, accountants, and bankers advising the rich on tax havens is sufficiently large to allow what the industry calls high net worth individuals, people with more than $30 million of investable assets worldwide, to move roughly $18 trillion of assets offshore. Overall, during the same decades in which the top 1%'s share of national income roughly doubled, the tax rates that it faced fell by perhaps a third. When Warren Buffett decries that he pays taxes at a lower rate than his secretary, he is reporting not an outlier, but rather the limit case of a pervasive development. The rich have leveraged their rising economic power to remake the American tax system so that, taken altogether, a once progressive regime has become effectively flat. Even when the rich are caught red-handed, they rarely get punished. The Obama Justice Department, for example, prosecuted effectively none of the financiers who caused the 2008 financial crisis, in part because prosecutors who would have handled the cases left for private sector jobs. The Empowered Elite When it created superordinate workers, meritocracy gave the elite a tool specifically built to render itself effectively ungovernable. This development, remarkably, evokes the Middle Ages. The crown and local nobles each owed their positions to commanding the personal fighting power of small numbers of heavily armed knights. Social norms, moreover, praised martial valor equally, regardless of whether it was displayed in service to a local lord or to a distant king and praised Christian virtue entirely apart from distinctions based on secular political boundaries. These arrangements enabled private wealth to compete directly against the state for the essential determinants of power and status, not only on material, but also on moral terms. The direct competition left the crown weak and local lords strong. From medieval times through the mid-20th century, a series of interconnected developments directed the state and private elites onto separate tracks. 
the state monopolized physical force, while private elites dominated economic life, including by owning the capital, land, slaves, and industrial machines on which top incomes depended. And the state dominated public virtue, which took on a civic or even patriotic cast, while elites emphasized private virtues grounded in an ethic of extravagant leisure. The division of labor enabled the state to achieve dominance in the public sphere, relatively free from direct private competition. Finally, meritocracy once again places the state and private elites into direct competition for the same basic asset, now the human capital of superordinate workers, and for the same basic virtues, now skill, effort, and industry. And just as feudal kings struggled to resist the private influence of local nobles, who competed directly for the asset that underwrote their power and status, so the present-day American state struggles to resist the private influence of wealth that competes directly for superordinate labor. In all these ways, at wholesale and at retail, meritocracy empowers the elite to dominate politics. Rather than responding to citizens considered as political equals, government dictates to the middle class and defers to the meritocratic elite. Meritocracy undermines democracy, elevating the working rich into a ruling class. <laughs> 